everybody to episode 296 of Breaking Kayfabe with Bowdrin and Barry. A slightly subdued opening. Barry Rose, why do you suppose that is? Hmm, subdued opening. We're looking. It's the, I guess, because the fan fest is over, Jeff. The, yes. I, 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 I'll never forget that moment in the fan fest when uh, we called uh, you and David Penzer up in front of the audience and, and you guys. That. Uh, because it's the last uh, CWF Legends Fan Fest, I, I'll never forget that that moment. <laughs> Hold on, just thinking oh, about it brought a little tear to my eye. Uh, but uh, you know, and you guys hugged, uh, you know, and in uh, you know tradition, you you guys kissed each other on the cheek, you raised each other's arms in victory as the all-time great tag team, uh, well, Midnight true. Express, British Bulldogs level, uh, that kind of thing, and then. You know, they started playing. I think we are the champions in the background, and and as you two slowly <laughs> yes. exit the room. Uh, anyway, no, the reason for <laughs> the slightly subdued edition of Breaking Cave with Bob right. Barry is because at the time that this comes out, Barry Rose very well may possibly be on the road. So wait a minute, look out by the highway, and there goes his car with Ozzy hanging out the window driving by. So no, we are doing this because uh, I'm going to break Cave to all of you. What you're about to hear is a special Father's Day edition of Breaking Kayfabe with Bowdoin and Barry, because Barry and I, jeez, uh, Barry, what's it been like five months ago now? At least. Yeah, we uh, we recorded, I, I read an article that I thought was very interesting uh, discussing fatherhood and discussing uh, things that are our fathers, uh, my father, Larry Bowdrin, and Barry's father, please help me, Barry, your father's name? Mike. 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 Uh, your father, Mike Rose, uh, things that uh, that Mike and Larry had taught us that hopefully we passed on to our children as uh, as parents, as fathers, as dads, if you will. And uh, I think you're going to find this pretty interesting uh, discussion uh, for those of you that are dads, uh, you know, and uh, for those of you maybe that aren't that hope to one day be dads. Uh, and I hope I hope, Barry, that we're going to pass along some uh, college of knowledge to uh, not just the wrestling fans in the audience, but just the fans of Breaking Fabe with Bowden and Barry. Yeah, we did. We did record this segment quite a while ago, and I uh, I don't remember. I mean, being that my memory now goes after like forty eight hours, I, I kind of start drawing blanks. But those damn was, edibles, Barry. Those it, damn I, edibles. Honestly, let's let's be honest. There there could be something to that, but I remember this was a uh, a very touching, kind of heartfelt segment that we did. As I start to think about it, and I don't really remember what we said, but I do remember getting choked up a couple of times and I'm getting a little lump in my throat, Jeff, just even thinking it's, about it's it. It's weepy dad berry, weepy dad berry time. About so, time. Anyway, uh so for for Barry and myself, uh we hope that you will enjoy a, a, a different sort of episode. And I know that I speak for Barry uh when I say that this episode of Breaking Cafe with Bowdrin and Barry episode 296 dedicated to my dad, Larry Bowdrin, and Barry's dad, Mike Rose. Take it away, Lou. You know, Barry, one of the things that I learned uh, from listening to Howard Stern, who's someone that both you and I were fans of in days gone by, I still like listening to Howard occasionally. I think he does a really good job uh, on interviews, and I know that you were a big <laughs> fan back in the day. And one of the things that uh, Howard always discussed and connecting with your audiences, you kind of have to open up a vein on yourself and you have to be willing to talk about yourself. And it's something that both you and I do. And so I came across this article that I thought would make for sort of an interesting discussion point. By the way, Barry does not know that I uh, have this article here. So he is being surprised by this non-wrestling discussion, Barry. So 
the the title of the uh, article is 12 important questions to ask your dad before he's gone. And unfortunately, both Barry and I have lost our father. Barry uh, much uh, was much younger than I was when uh, he lost his dad. So before I get into some of the talking points on this, Barry, besides wrestling, what's your uh, what's your fondest memory of your dad? Your dad's name was Mike. Mike. Okay. And my uh, my son Zachary has his he has his middle name, which was based okay. off of that. I guess my fondest memories, if I in you know I have so many, right? My father was a very kind and caring and loving father, and uh, I definitely tried to model myself sometimes successfully sometimes not but he was a very kind and caring guy i guess if if i had a memory and it wasn't wrestling related it would be pro it would probably be food and it would probably be going out to eat my dad i think my taste in food much more aligned with there were differences but much more aligned with my dad and us going out to eat was always kind of a, a special thing so i would think probably that yeah. And, you know, um, when I lost my dad hmm, just slightly over a year ago, uh, as I said, my dad lived to be much older than Barry's dad was. And, you know, uh, one of the Hobson's choice uh, that happens with your parents is, you know, if your parents pass away when they're younger, uh, you know, you remember them still as young people and, uh, you know, uh, still in some ways uh, with a vitality to them. You know, and my father had a lot of health issues before he he passed away. And so, you know, you sit there and you see your father kind of, I hate to put it this way, but slowly begin to wither away because of his health concerns and stuff like that. But my dad, you know, uh, when my parents had their 50th wedding anniversary, uh, my niece, uh, Scarlett, put together a booklet of memories of uh you know, myself, my, my brother and my sister and my parents, the five of us and what it was like growing up. And we started talking about, you know, our memories of our parents and stuff like that from when we were kids. And, you know, my dad, I said, I had friends of mine growing up that like, you know, I played little league baseball and their dads were always at the little league games. And my dad never went to my little league games. And I, when I was a kid, I was a little bit resentful of that, you know? And then I realized that the reason my dad wasn't at my little league games was because my dad was always working. He was uh, a real workaholic, whether it was when he was in the Navy or whether he was a hospital administrator. And my dad was working because he was providing for his family. And, you know, there's a certain amount of respect that I think uh, obviously is due to someone who does that. You'd like your dad to be more proactive in your life, whether it's little league or, you know, other, you know, activities you do as a kid. But as you get to be an adult, you sort of realize that there was a reason that they weren't being as as active in your life as a kid as you maybe wish, you know, they could have been when you were a kid. So anyway, getting back to this article, 12 important questions to ask your dad before he's gone. And so what I thought would make this interesting is if we're taking the view of, let's say, your son, Zach, or your daughter, Zoe, and, you know, my kids, Andy and Kelly. So the first thing, uh, first question that comes up. So this is going to be Barry answering this question for Zach and Zoe, and I'll be answering this question for Andy and Kelly. Okay. Barry, Barry, what are you most proud of in your life? And you can't say your kids. That's, right, that's the that's, one caveat. Yeah. Yeah. Because <laughs> I know that's what have been your answer. Course, I mean, it's I'm you know, so it fucking understandable. Predictable. Yeah. 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 And I'm so fucking predictable. So let's 
let's look at uh I've lived a life. I I, I it hasn't been what I would call a uh a complacent lifestyle. It hasn't been a lifestyle where uh, I, I did a lot of shit. I, uh, I don't want to say that, but I, uh, that would have been wrong if I would have said that. I did a lot. I moved around a lot. And with that, I also made a lot of mistakes. And I came to the realization years ago that while I'm not perfect, everyone makes mistakes. I wasn't going to beat myself up over it. And I've tried to do the best job I could as a parent. I'm not perfect. But again, I think we could all say that our parents probably weren't. And look, we just try to do what we can do. But on a daily basis, it's Ozzy. And I, the way that I have raised him is uh, I fucked up a lot in my life. I, I will be the first one to admit it. And I feel like I've done Ozzy textbook perfectly. Maybe I've gone the distance. So I, I think, it, again, I've always said on my tombstone, I you know, was a great father to Zach, Zoe, and Ozzy with what I would want it to be. Removing the kids, it would come down to Ozzy. That would probably be it. If there was something else. When my mother was dying, I uh, I made the decision that I was that everything else was going to be second, and that I was going to donate and dedicate the rest of my life or the rest of her life to making sure that she was happy and comfortable. And I got a phone call, and uh, it kind of caught me out of the blue. It was her best friend. I think I was on a plane within 48 hours. I remember there was a big snowstorm and I got down and, and I knew that my mother was dying and I called uh, my ex-wife and I called my job and I, I told both. I said, I'm not leaving uh, until at least she's in a good place or she's passed on. My job was very understanding. Obviously, my wife was understanding, who was also pregnant with Zoe when this was taking place. And I stayed uh, I stayed down in Florida. She was hospitalized and then went into a hospice. But I stayed, and it was probably two and a half weeks until she passed. And I guess I'm proud. You know, it's it, I. In some ways, I shouldn't be proud of something like that because that's our responsibility, right? As children with our parents, that is something that we are responsible for. But the reason I guess I was proud and to wrap this up was that when my father was dying and my father had been ill for many years, you know, I'll say 10 years, but maybe four of those in and out of hospitals continually and in long-term rehab facilities. And just, it was a 24 hour a day deal. And then he would come home and my mother would take care of him. And my mother was, she was unrelenting in her care of my, she was the person you want if you are sick. She is your, your advocate. She's the person that's going to fight for you. And, uh, you know, on a daily basis, if my dad was in the hospital, and again, there were times he was in the hospital for, you know, maybe a month on end, maybe a little longer, she wouldn't miss a day in going down there. And if I missed a day, whether I was working or just being a, you know, a dick and not going down for whatever reason, she would call me and say, you didn't go visit your dad today. And I was like, you know, I'm working 12 hours. Well, then you, when you're done, you go. And, and at times it frustrated me, but you know what? She was a hundred percent right, Jeff. And so for me, while I don't know if proud is the correct word, the fact that I was able to be there for my mother after what she had done for my father 
made me, you know, it was an obligation I had to do, regardless of, you know, if work would have fired me or whatever would have happened. It was something I had to do. And I guess in that regard, I was, I guess I was proud that I could be her and be there with her in her last moments. So a couple follow-up questions. We, uh, you know, as part of the discussion about wrestling and the influence that your father had, you know, taking you to the matches and, and then driving the wrestlers to and from, uh, you know, whether it's the airports or the hotels or whatever, that your dad was very active in that. Your dad, Mike, I haven't really talked a lot about your mom. What was your mom's name? My mom's name was Jean. Jean. Okay. Oh, it was, that was Kim's mom's name too. I did yeah. not know that. So, uh, and Kim, uh, or I'm sorry, Jean, she was a, a homemaker or what, or what did she do? She was a homemaker, but also a bond vivant in a okay. sense, which I like to, she was active in, uh, in every and anything. She was a, she had a lot of energy for, uh, for, you know, I guess I looked at her as an older person, but you know, I guess I'm in that demographic, but she had a lot of energy. Her, her highlights were she was part of a charitable organization that is a worldwide charitable organization and actually became the vice president of the South Florida chapter, which was a big deal. I actually went to her installation luncheon, and that was something she really carried proudly. The other thing was she was a nationally ranked tennis player for females over 50. Hmm. So yeah, so while she was a homemaker, which she was, at the same time, she was a busy woman always on the go. All right. So, uh, the other thing you, uh, you brought up was, uh, you know, you talked about Ozzy and, and, uh, how you feel you've done a, a good job raising Ozzy. So a very difficult question to ask, but something that I recently, uh, of course have gone through as we discussed on the show, when the time comes and, uh, Ozzy leaves you, have you thought about whether or not you will get another dog? I have. So I'll give you what is in my head. So giving you uh, credit for this suggestion, when the time comes for Ozzy, it will be in my arms in our house. There will be, it won't happen anywhere else. It'll be, I will uh, obviously probably be crying my eyes out for what may amount to weeks or months. I will. I feel that brother. I know you do. I know you do. That's why that's again, when we record Jeff, I half the time I'm just talking to you. I don't always, you know, I don't realize we're even recording, but that'll happen. I am going to get an Aussie tattoo on my body by a, a very renowned tattoo artist that does pets. I am either going to bury him or, or get him cremated. If I get him cremated, his ashes will then be buried with me when I get buried. And then to answer the question you did ask, because I gave you all this other stuff, yeah, I will get another dog. And I'll, I will tell you why. In my head for so long, because people would always say that, right? In your dog passes, will you get another dog? And I think I always said no, or I'm going to take time and do all that. And I, I know that I'll never love another dog the way that I love Ozzy. But I'll love another dog, right? Like dogs are different. And look, to somebody who's lost a dog, you do love your dogs. You love them differently. Am I right? The same. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I I didn't realize that, I guess, initially in the beginning. And I do now. And even though no one will ever replace my best friend, my, you know, I I love this guy with all my all my heart. I, I take a bullet and a heartbeat for him. No one can ever replace him. But at the same time. 
there's another dog out there that I can make happy that will bring me joy in my life. And I know that I mentioned this to you, but every time I've taken him to the groomers, which by the way, I have gone from four times a year at the groomer to twice a year because they've raised me to $150 and there's no way I can afford it. But I would take him to the groomer and then I would come home and I would look and wait, he's not here. Oh shit. He's at the groomer, but there's no sounds. I don't hear the nails on the wood floor. I don't hear it. It's fucking weird and I don't like it. So I actually may need that for my comfort as well. So long, long winded answer. I'll be getting another dog, Jeff. Okay. No, that's fair. So as I started uh, thinking about um, what my answer to this question would be, you know, before you uh, made your comments, the first thing I thought of, and it was something that, that you have mentioned uh, as we've discussed on the show before, it's that, you know, I worked at the same job for going on 33 and a half years. And, you know, when I first got the job, did I grow up as a kid dreaming to be an in-court clerk? No. Well, what I wanted to do was what I'm doing right now. It just took me until I was in my mid fifties to, to find my, uh, my spot, you know, uh, whether it was on the radio or, uh, you know, doing a podcast or whatever, this is what I wanted to fucking do. And, uh, but for whatever reason, uh, fate or life steered me towards the courthouse. And I started in January of 1986 and I lasted all the way through uh, 2019 at the same job. And I took a lot of pride in the job and it's a job. It's funny. I was just texting with, one of my few remaining friends that's uh, that's still at the courthouse. It's hard to believe three years the amount of turnover of people that I knew that have either retired or quit or just you know I mean some of them have passed away. Uh, you know it, it's interesting. Um, I, I happen to see in the uh, on the Sun Sentinel website that uh, the judge that uh, was one of the judges that was making rulings in the two live crew case uh, passed away. Uh, at the time we were recording this yesterday. So it just, you know, again, harking me back to another memory of when they were doing the two live crew trial in, in Broward County. But, uh, you know, uh, so, so many people have left there again. Was that what I wanted to do? No, but I did it. I took a lot of pride in my job. I didn't, you know, as much as I like to have a good time and I joke around and was Mr. Mr. Comedy and stuff like that at work. You know, when it came time to do my job, I absolutely didn't fuck around. I, you know, uh, the money that I made in a salary, I earned that money. And, you know, because I had took a lot of pride in my job, I, I took a lot of pride in not making mistakes because I was handing out a, a court disposition that was reflecting what a judge's sentence was to somebody. And, you know, judges, you write out the disposition, you hand it to them, and the judges are signing that, you know, the judge is assuming that you know what the hell you're doing. I don't know that that's the case anymore based on what I've heard, but when I handed that judge my disposition that I had filled out, that disposition was 100% accurate, and I took a lot of pride in that, uh, and I took a lot of pride in my job. But since you mentioned Ozzy, the other thing that made me most proud in my life, and again, we're excluding family and, and things like that, uh, you know, and, and of course, my relationship with Kim, especially after all the fuck ups I did uh, marital wise before I met Kim. But, you know, like you, Barry, uh, I, I've been extremely lucky as a pet owner. You know, I had my first dog. 
Uh, her name was Lady, and I had Lady. I got her when I was like 10 years old, and I had her so I was like 26. She lived 16 years. And then after I uh, had begun, uh, I got engaged with my second wife. She, right before we got married, uh, adopted a uh, dog that had been left at the end of a street. It was an Australian shepherd mix named Misty. And while we were married, we had Misty. The marriage ended, and I didn't miss some of the difficulties we had in the marriage, but I really missed Misty. She was a great, great dog, and I really loved her a lot. And then I met Kim, and you know, part of the reason, uh, you know, sort of only half jokingly, that uh, I was sold on Kim was that Kim was a dog owner. And she had a dog named Beezer, who was named after the Florida Panthers goalie, John Van Beesbrook. Wow. And yeah. And so that was kind of like, I thought that was kind of cool, kind of that a selling, yeah. selling point. And Beezer was a yellow lab golden retriever mix. It was two. His mom was a purebred and his dad was a purebred, but he was a 100% mutt, but he was a great dog. He was such a gentle, he was a big dog, but he was like a gentle giant. And he didn't love anything more than coming up on the couch, lying down on, on me and sticking his paws up in the air. And while I watched TV, just scratched his stomach. He lived for that. And he got so much joy out of that. And then uh, after Kim and I, we're together and we had begun living together, you know, you know, we we're talking about getting another dog and we went down to the, uh, the pound and, or the humane society. I can't remember which one it was. And we were looking for another dog because we wanted to have a companion for Beezer. And we went, uh, we we're walking through the run and there was a dog that was sort of laying on his side and he was kind of bored. Look, you know, I had this bored look on his face. And it said German Shepherd. Yeah, because they always guess, you know, what kind of breed it is when you go to a place like that. And I looked down at him and I said, well, you're a lot of things, but you're not a German Shepherd because uh, he was just jet black all over. And he kind of lifted his head and he looked at me and just sort of like, you know, it was almost as if he was saying, what? What am I? Am I supposed to be impressing you? You know, he just gave me this really right. almost <laughs> disdainful look. It was hilarious. And we ended up bringing home that black dog, my black dog, Midnight. And Midnight we had for 10 years, and Midnight was my Ozzy. And um, had him for 10 years, lost him to a tumor that was hidden behind his heart that nobody knew about, and it was right before Christmas. And I didn't think I could ever love another animal like that. And about three weeks later, Kim suggested we go and start looking for another dog. And that's when we found Gunny. And I had Gunny for 12 years. And I didn't think that I could ever love another dog like I loved Gunny. And, you know, of course, we've had other dogs. We had uh, Jazz and we have Molly. Uh, and they're both great dogs. They were great. Ma, Jazz was a great dog. But that was Kim's dog. Molly is a great dog. But she's Kim's dog, really. And then now, like about two months ago, we got Snap. And he... Uh, he is really, he's a bunch of energy. His, uh, at the time of this recording, he will be celebrating his, his second birthday. Uh, so he's a live wire. He, uh, is intrusive when it comes to like, if you have food that is in your hand, he will try to literally snatch it out of your hand. If you're not careful, he comes up and he positions himself at night. Sometimes he sleeps on the ottoman. Sometimes he comes up and he'll plop his butt right by you up in, up in the bed. Uh, he doesn't mind just interrupting your sleep space and he's hilarious. And I told Kim, I'll never get over the death of Gunny. Uh, I eventually got over the death of, of midnight. I don't know if I'll ever get over the death of Gunny, but 
I told Kim that part of the recovery process was the fact that um, I asked myself maybe a week or so ago, if I could have one year of gunny, like back with me, but to do that, I'd have to give up snap and return to snap to the humane society. And I told Kim, I said, I don't know that I could do that. I don't know that I could, you know, have snap return because he had been returned once before. And I just can't even imagine how traumatic that must be to an animal, you know, that you're, you think you found a home and then somebody decides for whatever reason, you know, uh, that they'll get, they're going to return you. And so snap had been returned after being with somebody for like a year. And, you know, so now he's with us for a couple months and I'm like, I'm not, I'm not giving this dog up. Even if it would mean that I could have my boy gunny back for a year, I would, I would do anything for that. But, if it meant giving snap up, I couldn't do that. So, so anyway, so those are things that I I'm most proud of. So let's get to the, uh, the next question, Barry, that is on this list, uh, sort of a, uh, a fatherly, uh, discourse for our kids, our four kids. So the next question, Barry is why did you choose your career? Uh, so I didn't choose my career. My career chose me. You're like, Chris, you're like Chris Z. I that's think what he so. always, that's what he always says. The growth, what what is it? the grocery, uh, life doesn't, uh, you, you don't choose <laughs> it. It chooses you. It, uh, that was not, you know, look at, I, I've had a great life. I don't have a lot of regrets. If I could go back, I would go back and do it differently. And I, I know I was just talking to the lovely Linda about this and, uh, if given the opportunity, I would have gone one of two ways. I either would have been a professional lifeguard and you scoff at that and I get it because it, you know, you're a lifeguard. However, lifeguards in Los Angeles County, senior lifeguards making in excess of $150,000 a year. So for me, spending my life on the beach would have been a beautiful thing. The other thing would have been if I was a marine biologist. And uh, is anybody here a marine biologist? Is anyone here a marine biologist? The golf ball went into the blowhole. <laughs> I could have been the guy taking it out of the blowhole, <laughs> but that was uh, that would have been probably the better of the two alternatives because I would have spent my life in in bodies of water doing research for the most. It just would have been a great thing. But for me, it was it's not what I went to school for. Uh, I was an English major. So go figure. But uh, the options for English majors are very limited. And quite frankly, I wasn't really a good student uh, for the most part. So with it, I had worked in restaurants going back to when I think I was 14 years old, even younger. But at 14, I kind of got into it. And then in my 20s, I was making a lot of money as a server, you know, working in New York City. And I was making more in New York City sometimes in one shift than I had made in Florida in almost a week. I was making that kind of money, you know, and then I'm talking to people and uh, I find out I'm making more than they are. And they've they've got all these careers, these, you know, so it, it just it made sense to stay in the restaurant business. I did it for so many years. And uh Towards the end, which would have been about 12 years ago, I worked a Mother's Day. I woke up. I think I was at work by 7 a.m. I lived an hour away, which would have woken me up somewhere around 5 or 5.30. I think I worked 14 to 15 hours that day. We did something like $38,000. Drove home after a 14, 15-hour day, took a shower, got into bed, 
alarm went off at 4 a.m. on Monday because on Mondays, Jeff, you got to do the P&L and count inventory. I stood up and I said, well, that's over, isn't it? And I knew it. My body was not, you know, I wasn't 22 anymore and I had just, it, I just couldn't do it. And I was lucky to get into uh, a sales position with Open Table, where I lasted almost 11 years and just recently went to another company. So end of the day, it did choose me. It was something out of convenience. And I'll, the restaurant business is kind of like the mafia, Jeff. I used to say that once you're in, it's really difficult to get out. And, you know, working in New York City was great. You know, I, I would work nights and weekends, but I would go out and party all night, beginning at like midnight. And I didn't care because I was single. And then you get married and have a family and have, a, you know, kids and all that. And you don't want to work late nights. You don't want to work weekends. You don't want to miss the, the softball and soccer games and whatever it is. You don't want to miss any of it. So it's great when you're single, but uh, it's not great for a married guy. And again, getting out really difficult. I was very lucky the way that I got out. So, you know, it was interesting. Uh, Kim and I were talking, uh, I was talking to her about this particular article and, you know, uh, she was discussing when she was, I want to say had just maybe had Andy. I don't, I don't know if she had Kelly yet or not, but believe it or not, she worked at the Broward County courthouse. (laughs) What? She worked there as a CSA, which stands for community service age, uh, aid. She was one of the people that she worked for BSO that when they would arrest somebody for a DUI, they would bring them to the courthouse and she would administer the breath test. And she was going, you know, but she worked like 11 to seven. She goes, I would come home from work. I would sleep for about five hours, do some homework stuff for school. Then I'd have to go in. And then she went to school from like, I don't know, like, uh, um, five to 10 and she'd leave school go to work and work overnights. And, you know, she said the problem was, was that they told her you have to be ready to testify in court. If somebody, you know, pleads not guilty. Part of the uh, testimony is they have the CSA come in and say, yeah, I gave them a breath test. This is what they scored in the breath test. That's why the cop arrested them for DUI because they scored above the legal limit. And when they told her that she had to be available, like on basically on call, you know, they she literally could get a call on a Monday uh, at noon saying we need you at 3 p.m. this afternoon to testify. And she'd be like, well, what if I'm in school? I, because she was going to school to become an occupational therapist. They're like, nope, you got to be there. Uh, judge's order. And she's like, well, I can't do that. And so that's why she quit that uh, job. But I thought it was kind of funny that here I, you know, hadn't known that she had worked at the, uh, the Broward County Courthouse. And it was right around. It was either right before or, you know, like it would have been. We crossed like maybe for a month or two before she left. So at the, so so why did I choose my career? As I said, uh, at the courthouse, I had wanted to be either a, uh, a broadcaster of some sort, uh, whether it was radio or TV, or I wanted to be uh, a journalist, uh, not necessarily a newspaper writer, but like maybe somebody that wrote books, ended up doing that later in life, too. But, um, you know, I was very fortunate. The job that I had when I was married to uh, the the first Mrs. Bowdrin was I hey, was an assistant manager with a car rental agency uh, in Fort Lauderdale. And my first wife had gotten a job at the courthouse at one of the satellite courthouses. And I knew that uh, my friend Craig, uh, Craig Halleck, who's a brother shipper, worked at the courthouse at the time. And his mom was in the personnel office. I went down and filled out an application and 
uh, I got an interview and I was very fortunate that I apparently did very good on the interview because they, uh, I said, you know, how long before I hear whether or not I got the job? And they were like, no, no, you got the job. We're just trying to figure out when you're going to start, which that was kind of cool. Wow. So, uh, yeah. And then, uh, 33 and a half years later, I was like, get me the hell out of here. So, uh, next question, Barry, again, we're going to, uh, set aside family members. Okay. All right. The question, Barry Rose, who was the most influential person in your life outside of your parents or your children? Oh, boy. It's going to come down to my friend, Victor. And uh, Victor would be happy to hear that. So Victor, with the exception of the professor, Pete Letterberg, Victor is probably the person I've been in touch with the longest I, I've known the professor since 76, and I've known my friend Victor since 1982. He was a guy that wound up hiring me for a restaurant in Bal Harbor, and probably for the next eight or nine years, if he went somewhere, he would hire me. He would call me and say, hey, I've got a one-off on Friday night. It's at a condo. They pay 150 bucks for the night. All you've got to do is do this. And it's like, so I, I worked with him on and off, but I also learned a lot from him. And uh, he was very honest and open. And he was a great mentor, but he was also a human being. He was also a great friend. And I, I think a lot of any success I had in the restaurant industry kind of begins with, with my friend Victor. So I would, that's who I would go with. So, uh, I will say that one of the things about my life that is somewhat unfortunate is I've had friends that I was very close to that for a lot of different reasons, uh, the friendship ended. Sometimes it was my choice. Sometimes it was their choice. Uh, I had a, a guy that I was very good friends with named Dennis. Uh, we were friends for the better part of uh, 10 to 12 years. And then there was a, uh, you know, like one of those situations where words are passed and disagreement. Uh, and you kind of get to that point where you kind of can't go back on them, you know, sure. and it's very unfortunate. And, uh, you know, it's, it's funny because, uh, he had reached out to me, Kim, Kim actually reminded me about this about, I don't know, five or 10 years ago and had said, Oh, uh, you know, uh, I was thinking about you the other day and, um, you know, sort of just asked what was going on. And I was still, uh, in a peak of, pissiness, I guess. And I, you know, basically said, Hey, you know, he fucking made his bed, you know, that's it. Uh, and I never got back to him. And I, I, Kim and I were having dinner last night and I told Kim, I said, you know, I said, I've often thought about, you know, reaching out to Dennis and, and seeing what's what and who's who, uh, he was a guy I worked with every day for all that time. And I, he literally sat right next to me and we were best friends and, you know, uh, one of the things I told Kim that, you know, when you have a, a friendship that ends and the other person that I was going to mention that I was friends with, uh, you know, uh, the guy that we refer to as Apache Bull Ramos, because I won't mention his name, uh, you know, uh, that guy was my best friend for over 10 years. And then right. d disagreement, it ends. And the problem when you have a, a situation like that, whether it was Dennis or, uh, you know, the guy that I call Apache Bull Ramos is that you have memories with those people, you know, and it's memories that you can't share with anybody else, whether you have a friendship that ends or you have somebody that passes away and you sit there and you think, oh man, I did so much for that person. And now, you know, who am I going to share that with? And, you know, I, I think to myself, 
uh, of like my first marriage, when I got married, the wedding day, there's literally one person that I'm still in contact with. You know, it's kind of sad. And my second marriage, eh, there's probably maybe five to 10 people that I still am in contact with, but not that I see every day, that kind of thing. So uh, if I was going to say, based on that criteria, believe it or not, I think the most influential person in my life would be my friend, Colleen. My friend, Colleen is my uh, second wife's sister. And Colleen and I have known each other for 40 years. She was actually, hold on to your seat for this, Barry. All right. She was the maid of honor at my first wedding. Ah. And she was the maid of honor at my second wedding because <laughs> ah. I was marrying her sister. So when it came time for me to marry Kim, we sort of jokingly pulled her aside and said, yeah, you're out. Uh, we figured you're the curse. You're the bad news. You're the bad luck. It's because of you that I keep getting divorced. <laughs> And she busted out laughing because, you know, she knew it was a joke and it was, you know, I thought it was kind of a cute joke, but, um, you know, through it all, she's, she, you know, I, I texted her today about something, you know, and it's somebody that I'm still in, in contact with regularly. Uh, and she is full of piss and vinegar. I love her though. And we've still remained friends through, uh, 40 years of good times, ups, downs. She's been married and divorced a couple of times also. Uh, you know, she, unfortunately, uh, not to get off on a side tangent here, but since I'm talking about this person, uh, my friend Colleen, she is, uh, and see if you can understand what I'm referring to here, Barry. She is a member of the club that no parent wants to ever be a oh, member of. Oh, no. Yes. She lost her son, Matthew, to cancer uh, a number of years ago. He was like maybe in his mid-20s. Oh. And, uh, yeah, so just horrible. And, you know, it's like one of those things where, you know, every year on the anniversary, she'll post something about him on Facebook or every year on his birthday, she'll post something. And that's, oh my God, I can't even imagine being a a member of that unholy, uh, fraternity or sorority, Trinity, whatever you want to call it. So, so yeah, so you would pick your friend, Vic. I'm going with my friend, Colleen. Uh, so maybe now I'll get to this because of this segment, Colleen, I'll listen to this particular edition. (laughs) We'll see if you can get your guy Vic to listen to this segment, Barry. So next question, what, uh, let's say, what did you admire most about your own father? Uh, his devotion to his family at his own health expense. And when I say that, so even though my father was having health issues, he was this very, uh, he, he was old school, much like your dad was probably very much old school, right? So even though my dad had had heart attacks and uh, had serious, I mean, diabetes and was having trouble walking, didn't, didn't diminish his, uh, the fact that he wanted to work when he should have been very much retired. And he had been with Levitt's furniture for 30 something years. And they decided to put him out to pasture to retire. And they gave him a great package and a great send off and they loved him. And he was very instrumental in the success of Levitt's furniture. But at the same time, he wasn't just, he had that old school mentality. He wasn't ready to go home and just sit around or go to the pool every day. And he wound up working for another furniture company. And it was, you know, I guess in hindsight, it it was sad. 
and I don't know currently, you know, I, I don't know if I, I guess currently I view it that way. I don't know if I did at the time because I would often, he wasn't allowed to drive anymore because of his health issues. And I would actually drive him and pick him up from work a lot. And uh, it was just sad because it was obvious that it was somebody at the tail end of their career, if not their life. And, uh, you know, it, it, it sucks to have to go out that way in a lot of ways. But what I, again, I, I get off on these tangents with my dad, even with these health issues, Jeff, and not really being able to walk and having spent all this time in the hospital, even when my father was working, he would he would go into work and then make sure that he was out Wednesday nights to be able to take me to wrestling. Now I can take that and I can tell you if I ever had anything planned with my dad, whether it was maybe to go shopping for a holiday coming up or to go out and eat or just to do anything, my dad would rearrange his schedule and even at his own personal personal health expense would still do it. And I, I just, you know, again, in hindsight, I was a kid. I, I wish I would have said, dad, we're just going to stay home tonight. We're just going to do this because I always felt like he was just unrelenting and would just push himself. And I just, I don't think it was helping him obviously. So what I admire about it, my dad overall was his devotion at his own expense, his own health to be there for his family, which is, I guess that's what it's supposed to be in a lot of ways. But I think part of me will always feel a little bit guilty about that. You know, my dad, um, I think was most proud of the fact that he had served our country for 25 years in the Navy. And when he got out, he was a hospital administrator for a number of years. But then uh, when he retired, my dad was very active in the Elks and uh, he got to, uh, the beside it's like one of these exalted rulers or you know but it wasn't like the proverbial uh what's the ones that uh fred flintstone used to do you know like the you know where he, oh yeah the, the, the exalted <laughs> buffalo or whatever. yeah yeah um but it was very much that he he did it because the elks are very active in service uh you know for uh, disadvantaged people or people that are sort of out there that need assistance and he was very proud of that and so I, I feel like in a lot of ways, my dad lived a life of service to others. And, uh, you know, that's something I, I thought was uh, something you could really admire. You know, my dad was in the Navy, uh, as I mentioned, and towards the end of my dad's life, uh, it was very sad because my uh, my mother and, and my father, my sister lived with them, my sister, Reen, who's in our group. And, you know, Reen was was and uh, is the caretaker of my mom and was the caretaker of my father also uh, in the last, you know, couple of years of his life. And, you know, I, I've often told Kim that in many ways towards the end of his life, my father was the proverbial captain without a ship. And he would kind of boss my sister around as if, uh, you know, she served under him, you know, the way when he was, because my father got to be a commander in the Navy. And, uh, you know, that's what, you know, some, sometimes we called him the commander and, you know, it was, to me, it was very sad to see, uh, my dad be that commander without a ship to command. And I, I believe it was Dylan Thomas who had the quote, uh, about, you know, was it about uh, going into, you know, the dying of the light and, 
I think my uh, rage against the dying of the light. That's the line, I think. And I think in a lot of ways, towards the end of his life, my father was raging against the dying of the light. And uh, I think it was very frustrating to him. Uh, I think he was, uh, do the math here, he was like 93 when he died. Lots of health issues, but he still wanted to be that man that was the commander on the ship. And, you know, uh, I think one of the things that was discussed at his funeral was he was now uh, in a place where he could not only see, you know, uh, his parents, but he could see those guys that he served with in World War II. My father, I think I mentioned this, Barry, I don't know if you remember, my father, uh, being part of that, what they call the greatest generation, he lied about his age to enroll uh, in the military when he was like 16 or 17 years old. And he got in and then they found out about it, kind of kicked him out. And then three years later, uh, when he was of age, he joined the Navy and stayed in for 25 years. Uh, it was just like a, a different time that people would do that. So, uh, yeah, that's what I uh, I learned about my dad was, you know, being there and, and serving his country and, uh, you know, through the Elks, the, the service to, to people that needed help. And uh, that's something that uh, I, I thought was very admirable. OK, next question, Barry, uh, in this article is you're telling again, you're telling Zach and Zoe this. What's your life's or your biggest life lesson? <sighs> wow. Could certainly. Uh get a few of those out there. I would say the biggest life lesson is when you are 18 years old, you are unstoppable. You are, you're a force known to nature that whatever it is, you will be resilient, be standing, and you will survive it. And that's an important thing because, uh, I know that, you know, I know when I was younger, I definitely felt that way. I don't always feel that way anymore, but financially, take hold of your finances young and you don't want to be, and I will say had, had my ex, my ex was a, uh, a master at keeping us on a great financial track. And I was the opposite. I, you know, I'll go see a Knicks game and go blow 400 bucks on tickets and go out to a nice dinner. I just, I, I, I never had a concept of being good with money. It was always, let's, let's live, let's, let's enjoy. And, uh, if not for her, I have a feeling right now I would be sitting here rolling pennies as I think about my retirement, my future. Luckily, I've got something. But again, I give her the credit. What I would tell my kids, get a handle on that early. Doesn't mean that you've got to take every penny. You should live your life. You should be out there. You should be doing things. You don't want to have regrets when you're 60 saying, shit, why didn't I do this? But at the same time, when you're frivolous with money and you're essentially burning it, figure out what 40 years of being frivolous with money will do. And you can have that and be able to maybe retire at a young age. So just to be, you know, I, the advice, just to be a little more cautious with your money and smarter about it. And I'm very happy to say, I think Zoe's got that. Well, the good news is you've always got that Arcadian money that you can fall back on. <laughs> so I would say. Where is that Arcadian? To what's the 22nd? Where is that, Jeff? <laughs> we've, we've got that in stock options, profit sharing, all that kind of stuff. Oh, yeah. So, um, you know, one of the things that uh, when my kids were kids uh, and they're now adults is I found myself wondering wow, what, what's what's going to become of these two as they go into adulthood? Because, you know, with Andy, as I've discussed, Andy has Asperger's. And uh, there was a time when Andy 
had a real problem uh, obtaining work. And we always knew that once he got a job that he was going to be locked in and they were going to never want to get rid of him. But it's that interview, you know, part of the Asperger's, the whole, you know, not always making eye contact with somebody, you know, like uh, uh, coming off as aloof or shy. Uh, what was he going to do with that? And my daughter, Kelly, you know, we uh, we thought when she was, you know, when she was a teenager, I, w- I would just be like, what, what the heck is she going to do? Because, <laughs> you know, we would sit there and say, you need to go out and get a job. And she would just kind of like poo poo it and stuff like that. Well, it's funny how the worm has turned, because, you know, when you talk to your kids and you think, you know, sometimes they're really not listening and you're like, you know, you're you're going to remember these conversations I have. And at somewhere along the lines the conversations, you know, like that, that synapse in the brain that stores all those old conversations, maybe it gets released and it's like, they go, Oh yeah. I remember that talk that they had with us, uh, you know, and because of Andy's Asperger's, a lot of times, uh, I think the conversations that I had with Kelly, you know, sort of took hold more, you know, when, when, we would tell Kelly stuff like, yeah, you know, those people that you're friends with in high school, chances are you're not going to be talking to maybe but one or two of them in a couple of years. And she'd be like, oh, no, we're friends forever. And then a couple of years goes by and I'd say, hey, you still talk to that uh, one one guy that you were friends with in the band? Oh, no, no, he's on Facebook, but I haven't talked to him in a couple of years, you know, and I'd sit there and kind of go, hmm. You mean kind of like, just like I said, was going to happen that, that conversation. And she'd kind of, you know, give me the side eye. And, uh, you know, uh, Kim has always said that from a personality stand, you know, it's, it's funny. Kelly's not my quote unquote natural daughter. She's my adopted daughter, but because she was so young when I did adopt her, that a lot of the personality positives and negatives that we both have are, are very similar and, and Kim sees them. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's like one of those things, those conversations that you had, you know, you mentioned, you know, taking care of your finances and, you know, and I, I like to think that Kelly was listening, you know, when I would sit there and and give her advice, uh, you know, whether it's about, you know, uh, relationships she had with her girlfriends, with boyfriends that she was dating, you know, that, that sometimes uh, you take hold and it's good to see that those, uh, those conversations, as I said, whether over finances or relationship advice, that sometimes they do take hold. Next, Barry, number six on the question list. Is there anything you regret not doing in your life, Barry Rose? Oh, there's a lot. Uh, a lot. It, so I, I got to say, and I, I had a conversation with somebody. It was an someone older than me. And we were talking about regrets and the person said the biggest regret that I have are the regrets that I have. And it was more along the lines of stuff that they hadn't done versus stuff that they had done. So I I don't really regret. I made a lot of mistakes in my life. Jeff, you have as well, right? Like with your marriages and it, and Thanks for uh, pointing that out to me. Yeah, yeah. Well, no, but this is what I'm trying. But but here, <laughs> that did. Okay, I apologize. That came off really bad. Son of a bitch. Exactly. What a dick. Especially around the holiday season. Let me rephrase <laughs> that. Do you? And this is what I'm saying. Do you regret those two marriages, though? Even if they turned out not the way you wanted them to, do you regret it, or was it a lesson learned in a way? Oh no, absolutely. I I have told Kim before that the person that I was when I met Kim 
I had become that person because of the mistakes I made in my first two marriages. There you go. Yeah. There you go. Absolutely. Yeah. So for me, I uh, I don't regret stuff that I have done. Again, life lesson learned there. I regret stuff that I didn't do that I now go, fuck, I should have done that. That's the biggest regret I have. I would say uh, the point you made about my first two marriages is a fair and valid one. But the one that popped into my mind, you know, uh, what's the old line about the uh, the the most uh, saddest thing is when you, you know, you say, what if, uh, you know, what if I had done this? What if I had done that? And, and I'll give you an example. You know, my sister, uh, very early in her life, um, I don't know if you knew this, Barry, was was a radio broadcaster. And that's I did not know that. Yeah, she was a country music DJ. She went uh, her handle was Honey Williams uh, in uh, Dothan, Alabama. And she worked at a country music station. And so she let me sit in while she was broadcasting because she uh, she did like the late like six to nine shift or something like that. And so we sat in and it was a big deal because I got to read, you know, the sports news. You know, I was like maybe like eighth or ninth grade or something like that. Uh, and so, you know, it was like Cubs four, Reds three. You know? And I was like, you know, uh, I was, wow, this is what I want to do with my life. And then I went back and she was working uh, at a radio station and she knew that I wanted, and at this point I was like, mm, maybe like 22, 23. And I was dating the first Mrs. Baldron. Uh, and we had started getting serious, but I don't know if we were engaged or not. Uh, maybe it was to the point where I was telling my sister that I'm going to go down there and going to ask her that kind of thing. And when I was getting ready to leave, to go back home, my sister kind of uh, pulled me aside and said, um, listen, I, I, I want to tell you something. Uh, the manager of our radio station has just told me that starting in the fall, they're going to be doing high school football games. And they're looking for someone to do the play-by-play for the high school football oh. games. And it was uh, it would have been uh, for the team in Enterprise, Alabama, which uh, Enterprise, Alabama at the time had really good football teams, you know. Uh, and it was like one of those teams that was always in the, you know, the state playoffs and stuff like that. So it would have been an incredible opportunity. I talked myself into believing that the reason that I said no was because, you know, I was in love and I was going to go back and, and ask the first Mrs. Bowdrin to marry me. But I always wondered, you know, on the highway that is your life, you know, Tom Cochran once said life is a highway. And on those like off ramps that take you uh, in different directions in your life, what would have happened at uh, age 22, 23 years old? If instead of staying on that road and going back to South Florida and marrying the first Mrs. Bowdrin, what would have happened if I had decided to stay in Dothan, got off that highway and started broadcasting high, high school football games? Would it have taken me somewhere else in my life? So, uh, yeah, that's uh, kind of interesting to think about what if, Bear. That's an exciting one, too, right there, is that uh, imagine that you, you start off broadcasting high school football games that translates into college. And then we know, we know where you go from there. So, yeah, you could have right? it could have been a big deal. I think we all have that, too, Jeff. I, I'm sorry. I, I'm, I'm not a big deal to you, Barry. I could have been a big deal, but uh, you could have been a big boy. I'm insulting you left and right today. <laughs> and just just oh, the yeah. phone call to McAdam is happening tonight. Breaking Gippy yeah. with McAdam and Ben Baldwin and uh, <laughs> <laughs> with McAdam and Baldwin and whatever else. <laughs> does he? So, uh, 
Yeah, is he uh, is he seeing the big Arcadian Vanguard dollars? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> so number seven, Barry. All right, let's get back to Mike Rose. Oh, I love. How that. would your father describe you? My father would have described me. Uh, so I was the apple of my father's eye, and sadly, uh, I think sometimes he was blinded by that love uh, to me. So if I think if it's realistic, it may not be quite the same, but I think he would have, uh, he would have said that I was fun. I had his sense of humor. I enjoyed life around me and that I was, I think, I think he thought I was a good son. So that's probably where I would be. So uh, just curiosity here. uh, How do you think your relationship with your father would have been different, better or worse? If you had had a sibling, because of course you were an only child. Well, so breaking kayfabe, I have a half sister, Jeff. Oh, okay. I um, didn't know that. Is that <laughs> I was going to say this breaks. She's uh, she lost her legs in the war, but she's still my sister now. She's a, she was my mother's daughter uh, uh, before she married my father, my mother being married prior to that. Uh, but he was very good about including her. She had and still has two daughters. And my dad was, uh, even though he wasn't th- her birth father or the the birth grandfather, he was as close a grandfather as any grandfather could be. That's the way my dad was when it came to kids. He just loved, uh, he loved being a dad, loved being a grandfather. Uh, and I'm sorry, exa- what was the question, Jeff? How would your father describe you? No, no, you, there was uh, something. Oh, no, no, I'm sorry. How would it have been different uh, if you had had a sibling for better or worse? I don't know. I, I, I imagine like, so if I, let's say I had a sister who didn't like wrestling, how would my dad have handled that on Wednesday nights? He was pretty good. I mean, my, again, my dad would, he would come home from work. He would hang with me. He would want to do stuff with me. And then I would watch him go lay down. Like he would literally collapse at the end of the day up at six, to bed by 1030 in his sixties, just, you know, he was killing himself to be a good dad. And that's what I got. I don't know. I don't know how it would have changed. Honestly, I don't know. I've never, that's a, I mean, it's a good question because I've never thought about it and I don't know what the answer, I, I think he would have pushed my guess. He would have pushed himself harder to make both kids happy at his own detriment. I think my dad, uh, you know, it was one of those things where I, I always thought my dad was proud uh, of me. He was proud of my brother and sister. Also, I always felt like, you know, one of the things that, uh, and I think my brother and sister, uh, both felt this along with me was, you know, my dad sort of set this high bar for us. You know, uh, he wanted us to be sort of more than we were not that he wasn't proud of us. You know, uh, one of my most painful memories was I, uh, I don't know if you know this, Barry, we're, we're just breaking kayfabe all over one another. I know we, I flunked out of college and, you know, I like to pretend and say, I just kind of stopped going, but the truth is I flunked out of college and I basically kayfabed it from my parents until that letter arrived in the mail (laughs) saying, it's been a great knowing you, but, uh, you don't need to come back. And I had to uh, do some, as Lucy uh, and Desi used to say, I had to do some splaining. And one of the things I told my dad was, uh, I'm sorry, I can't be you. You've set the bar too high. 
And he said, I never ask you to be me. I ask you to be yourself and be the best of you. You don't have to be me, which is a great fatherly answer, you know, quite frankly. Sure. But, you know, so uh, I, I think he was still proud of me. I feel like I should have done more and could have become more to be um, held in more regard by him in my own eyes. That's a very long-winded way of saying it. Uh, that being said, uh, it's funny because I, you know, my dad, when we, we were growing up, we always thought my dad was so serious and, you know, like he was uh, very, you know, like work orientated and, you know, like uh, didn't come off like a guy that was full of fun in life. And one day I was going through a bunch of old boxes with photographs and stuff like that. And lo and behold, I come across my dad's old high school yearbook. Okay. And I see that my dad was basically, uh, and I mean this absolutely in the best way. He was like the class clown. And one of the girls in the yearbook had written uh, to Larry, not just a card. You're the whole deck. And I saw that and I was like, say what? And I went and I showed it to my mom and I go, what the heck does this mean? At the time, this was, I was like maybe 18 or 19 when I found this. And she like looked and she kind of smiled and she said, yeah, that was your dad. He was Mr. Jokester. And then my mom kind of looked at me and I think there was sort of a, now you know where you get it from kind of moment, you know? And I like to think that the sense of humor that I have, the, you know, ability to bust balls and to, you know, like, uh, uh, have the, uh, the, the witty comebacks on those rare occasions that I have the witty comebacks, Barry, uh, that it's something that I acquired from my dad, you know, and, uh, I mean, not that my mom is without a sense of humor. Uh, but you know, when I call and, uh, you know, speak to my parents, you know, when my dad was alive and I would joke with him and stuff like that and make my mom and dad laugh. I feel like that was a gift that my dad gave me. And, you know, to make their day by making them laugh is something that I always enjoyed doing. So that's what I think my dad would say about me. Okay. Oh, Barry, this is going to be a good one. What mistake taught you most about life? Check that list, Barry. (laughs) Yeah, well, I, I think I have a feeling where you're going to go with this. How dare you judge me? I know. Well, <laughs> yeah, you know what, I, what I'm thinking. It's, but uh, what mistake? What was it exactly? What mistake? What mistake taught you most about life? It was a mistake, I think, that I made in a relationship about 30 I guess about 30 years ago would be early nineties. Mm. And it was, a mistake. I knew you back then, didn't I? You did. You did. And uh, I was in a relationship at that stage. And, uh, I was, I think I was much more, I mean, I, I still am, but I was much more self-centered, selfish. And I was really concerned with myself and not the other person. And I, I started to look at life a little bit differently after that and and not be so self-centered and not be, you know, the world doesn't revolve around me. And just because I think this or feel this way, not everybody else does. And quite frankly, I shouldn't give a shit what other people think either. I should just, you know, I should try to treat people and do things right. And a result, I made a, uh, I made a mistake in a relationship. mistake is like not even the right. I fucked up a relationship 
by being a douchebag. And uh, I think I learned from it. I would, I absolutely learned from it. So, uh, so what do you think my answer is going to be? I think yours is going to be marriage number one, Jeff, is what I was leaning towards. Well, no, actually, that's not, as I said, everything that happens. Okay, whoa, whoa, whoa. Not marriage number one, but what it occurred after. Okay, that's that's fair. Okay. Some things we won't break kayfabe on because, quite frankly, they were discussed in a Patreon episode. That's so, true. but yeah, uh, he's right about that. I uh, I also made an error in judgment. That's a very polite way of saying that. In uh, how my second marriage ended, and uh, I was not happy. Uh, anybody that really knew me uh, knew I was unhappy with uh, the relationship and sort of the direction that it was going in and um, the emotional distance that had grown between the two of us. And I wanted out of the relationship uh, very badly. I didn't know how to get to that point uh, when, in fact, uh, let's just say the decision was was basically thrown at me uh, to where I had to uh, deal with, you know, the reasons and had to explain myself. And I wish I had done it differently, but again, going back to a point that I've made before the decision of what I did that led to this mistake did profoundly change, uh, change me. But again, it led me on the course that led me to the person that I'm with now, who is the person that I was supposed to be with all along. And I just did not realize that. And uh, trust me, I, uh, you know, it's funny. One of the things I, I jokingly say to Kim every once in a while is I say, you know, sometimes, uh, honey, do you just not drop onto your knees and thank God for putting me in your life and all the joy that I brought you because of that, you know, and, and she'll like, of course, roll her eyes at me and go, oh, of course. But, you know, really, I, I'm the one that should be doing that for, for putting her in my life uh, because, uh, Quite frankly, I'd be I'd be in a shit ton of trouble if uh, if he hadn't put her in my uh, in my life. So, Barry, I think I know the answer to this one on the next question. Barry Rose, uh, you're telling Zach and Zoe what world event had the most impact on you? Ah, oh, tough one because uh, you know it really comes down to one, and it was nine uh, eleven because we all lived in New York and. Uh, my ex was working for NBC, which was also a target. And Zach was seven months old at the time. And we were right in the heart smack dab of New York City when essentially the world was coming to an end. So it really impacted us uh, tremendously. We felt the impact for months afterwards. We finally wound up leaving this city, I guess, about a year, maybe a year and a half later, just because of certain things that had taken place. Follow up to that, I would say maybe Hurricane Andrew would be the runner up, but 9-11, definitely. So uh, I think both my choices would be the same as yours uh, in in the same order. Uh, 9-11 impacted us tremendously because come to find out one of the guys that hijacked the plane literally lived a couple blocks away from us. And uh, I will never forget when I, I went and picked the kids up from school. And I want to say Kelly would have been, uh, oh, let's see, eight years old. Uh, and 
I set them down on the couch and said, I want you both to watch what's going on in the news because this is history. This is the history of our country, but it's happening right now so that you guys can remember it. And Kelly, uh, as an eight-year-old is wont to do, uh, looked at me and said, uh, this is happening in New York City, right? And I said, yeah. She goes, does this have anything to do with with Fort Lauderdale and, and Broward County? And I said, no, no, you know, because I was thinking, oh, she's worried that, you know, uh, the terrorists are going to hit, you know, Coral Springs. And she said, uh, does this have anything to do with that? I said, no, this doesn't have anything to do with Coral Springs. And then like two days later, of course, it comes out in the news, which I decided not to share with Kelly, by the way. Sure. That one of the hijackers had lived a couple blocks away from us. Uh, and so that was uh, pretty scary. And of course, you know, the fact that it came out very, I don't know if you remember this or not, that the uh, the guy would go down to an executive airport in Fort Lauderdale and ask to practice uh, takeoffs. Uh, what about landings? No, no, I don't need to practice landings, only takeoffs. Not that that should have raised a red flag to anybody, you know, Bear? Yeah, exactly. So. I think there was, there's been a change since then, though, right? Where I, I know that that's Yeah, I'm sure that you know, yeah. may have led to uh, some red flags being raised. So, and, you know, n- not to get off on a whole thing here, but, you know, it's crazy to think that that's uh, 20 years ago that that happened. And even, you know, though it's only been 20 years ago, you know, I, I always see on December 7th on Pearl Harbor Day that it's to some younger people in this country, it's really doesn't strike them as kind of a big deal anymore. You know, the fact that that happened 80 years ago. And I think to myself at some point when my kids get older, I wonder if 9-11 is going to turn into not not so much a big deal to kids of, you know, that next generation that, that comes along after years have gone by and it's going to be 9-11 and there's going to be, memor- you know, remembrances and all that at the at the site of the, you know, the the towers going down. And will there be a generation of kids that will be like, why are, why are we talking about this? This happened years ago. Who cares the way that. I'm sad to say that some people seem to react about December 7th, Bear. Yeah, well, I, I and I think that's a, a good point, too. And I think what will happen is, I mean, if you're not a uh, a student or aficionado of history, World War II, you know, again, I think we're, we're 80 years removed from it. If you weren't there or a student of history, it becomes another tragic date. And I, I'm sure that in some form we're probably all desensitized to it. I think for 9-11, I, I think the fact that it's still fresh, right, that it's like 21 years. And a lot of us remember where we were, what we were doing, the impact, what happened afterwards, and how it changed all of our lives. And I mean, the truth is, it, on a daily basis, our lives all are changed because of 9-11. So I think from my standpoint, I you know, 9-11 would be the most at least at this stage of my life, the most really significantly important historical event that I've ever been through, it'll it will that'll that'll probably never change for me. But I I I think that kids being born today, it won't have the same impact on them because they weren't part of it. And whatever they have to experience, and sadly I'm sure there'll be something, uh, that'll wind up for them being their most important. So, uh, just a couple questions left, Barry. What do you enjoy most about being a father? <sighs> Seeing my kids happy and healthy. And I, that's, that's such a fucking cliche and I know it. And I used to, I used to want to slap and strangle people that said shit like that. But I can tell you, uh, having been a father now for uh, approaching 22 years, when my kids 
are truly happy about something and something major, it's it's everything. And the worst feeling in the world, Jeff, when your kids are either sick, when there's an illness or something. Well, hold on, because maybe we're getting to that in the next question. All right. So I will say uh, for me. Uh, you know, I, I talked about how with my daughter, Kelly, that, uh, she'll do things, uh, personality wise that I can see that are things that whether she realized it or not, that she sort of acquired from me. Uh, and you know, when I see her, you know, like as an example, the whole love for animals and pets, and she works as a, a supervisor for an animal hospital over the, the vet technicians. And she literally loves animals so much. You know, here's something you don't know, Barry. Uh, Apparently, uh, within the last, I want to say, four or five days, the time of recorded uh, this, like uh, she has a cat that is an outdoor cat that it's not her cat. It's like a feral cat that sort of comes around uh, out where she and her husband live. They live out in the country. And, you know, Kelly puts food out and feeds it and stuff like that. Well, apparently the mother cat had kittens and she had two kittens that were smaller ones that I guess the mother wasn't really taking care of. So Kelly took the kittens, brought them into the animal hospital for the vet to examine and, you know, see what could be done to help them and stuff like that. And now she's trying to foster them out to different homes and stuff like that. And, you know, she, she called, uh, you know, called us and, and asked him, uh, Oh, any interest? And in, no, no, that's not what we need. But the fact that she's that way and that she cares about animals that way, that really, uh, gives me a lot of pride and shows that some things that I thought, you know, that I, that I showed her about taking care of animals and never being cruel to animals is, uh, is something that really kind of makes me proud. And, and, uh, it's a very good moment in my life. So that brings us to the next question, Barry, what was the hardest moment for you as a father? It's a tough one because I probably have never spoken about it publicly and in a lot of ways, I think uh, I think this. Okay, so so when Zach was born, we were he was in the hospital overnight. We were taking him home the next day. We were in the elevator. It was myself, Zach, my ex, and a nurse. And Zach began twitching in the in the elevator. So the nurse said something is doesn't appear to be right. I want to take him back up and have a doctor, have your doctor look uh, to see what's going on. So it turns out Zach was having brain seizures as a, as a baby. And uh, he, these continued until he was, I guess about four uh, somewhere in his fourth. And there were periods where it would go away and it would come back but we moved down to Orlando and uh, I was working, was working for Universal Studios and I was working literally every day, you know, five days a week, but long hours. And I just wasn't home a lot. And at the same time, we also had Zoe, who was a baby at that stage. So my ex would be home. She'd be home with a newborn. And at the same time, she's trying to deal with Zach and it wasn't like the hardest part 
was being the parent and having to watch it because there were times when he would go into a seizure, but he was, and I forget exactly what the seizure was called, but he was able to still function. So it wasn't like his eyes were rolling back and he was swallowing his tongue like a grand mal seizure or something like that. These were, I guess, small electrodes in his brain that were causing them, but it would cause him to do things involuntarily almost like a Tourette's in some ways, but it, we, we, it wasn't Tourette's. It was these seizures. And I remember coming home one day and my ex is, both kids are napping and sleeping and she's in tears. And it really dawned on me that even though I think Zach was all right with it, the pain it caused uh, my ex. And then by turn, it caused me a lot of pain because, sure. you, know, you know, I would watch her and I had a break. I, I could go to work. I worked in a theme park. It was a fun atmosphere. It's jovial. And she's home without any support. You know, there's no family around and she's trying to take care of Zoe, which can be challenging. It's a newborn and Zoe was a tough ball buster was a baby. And, uh, then she would look at Zach and Zach might be having his seizures and he was still the sweetest little boy. He was still this innocent, sweet little boy, always happy, never complained about anything. I don't know how aware he was or not aware. And she would, you know, she would go, I, I can't do it tomorrow. I, I can't watch him tomorrow. It's too hard. And I understood what she was saying. And I think sometimes I didn't have the strength. Like I would be playing with Zach, but I wouldn't look at him. I might look at the ground or the toys or whatever we're doing because I knew what it would do to me. And we videotaped one day the kids doing something. And of course, the uh, the brain seizures were caught on that. And I watched it and I just, <sighs> it's a pain like you'll never feel. It, it's, it's, I really want to quantify this so that people understand it's not the type of pain. Like I never once thought about ending my life because uh, it wasn't about me. It wasn't about that. But the pain when you watch your child and you just know inside he's probably suffering or what's going to happen in the future. And will he be ostracized by other kids if this continues? You know, there's a million thoughts that go through your heads and they all suck at the end of the day, they all suck. And to me, you know, I've, uh, I can take pain. I can take a horrible situation, Jeff. I, I've been through it. You've been through it. You know, I can do it. But when it comes down to my kids, it it's like putting a knife up my rectum and turning it. I'm trying to think of the most painful thing I could think of. And that's probably it. It's arguably the worst feeling on the face of the earth when your kids hurt in some form and you can't do anything about it. So I was actually thinking, uh, as you were describing what you had gone through with Zach, um, you know, when I was married to my first wife, uh, she had a, uh, she had a daughter. I've never really talked about this. The, the pain that I felt when my wife and I separated was doubled because not only was I missing the wife, the woman that I was still in love with at the time, but I was now separated from this little girl 
who was my daughter that I had helped raise. And it's, you know, it's really scary, Barry, to think that now that little girl is 30, 38 years old, somewhere out there. You know, it's just like really kind of amazing for me to think about that. But for the first year and a half, two years of her life, I was an everyday presence uh, in her life. And two things that that, uh, I was thinking about is, uh, first of all, uh, when she was about six months old, uh, my first wife was at work and I was at work and we both got the call that her mom had been watching uh, her daughter and the little girl somehow uh, fell off the couch and they thought she had fractured her skull. And it was an absolutely terrifying moment to think that that's something that, you know, because, you know, you think about what you just said that, you know, Zach, everything that Zach's going through, you know, a a child at that age that fractures their skull, uh, imagine the potential, you know, uh, conditions, injuries, uh, situations that could, you know, occur further down the road because of having that injury when you're that age. And it was absolutely terrifying. I'm very happy to say that uh, based on everything that uh, I knew years later, she did not suffer anything uh, long term from that. But it was a very, very scary situation. And in keeping with that, uh, I will say that um, after my wife and I separated and were in the process of divorcing, I called over one day to uh, to talk to her and. In the background, I heard her, uh, she was probably about two and a half, maybe three at this time, and uh, as I was talking to my soon-to-be ex-wife, and I heard her daughter in the background, and her daughter said, who are you talking to? And she said, uh, she goes, I'm on the, you know, she goes, I'm on the phone. She goes, who are you talking to? And she said, is that daddy? And my soon-to-be ex-wife said, no, that's not daddy, that's Jeff. And it was absolutely gut-wrenching to hear because it reminded me that I was not going to be a part of that little girl's life anymore. And uh, that I had to basically come to terms with that. You know, here I had raised a child for two, you know, two years. And now it wasn't my child. uh, It was my stepdaughter. But, you know, in my mind, she was my child. And to have that sort of ripped away from me just was like, you know. It was like a uh, a wound that hadn't healed and the wrapping was just torn off of it. And, you know, uh, I remember uh, about a decade later, I was having a conversation with my ex-wife and uh, I brought that up and I told her in no uncertain terms what a complete bitch I thought she was for saying. And, you know, to be honest with you, she didn't it didn't even remember doing that. And she said, I, I can't believe I did that. That was that's absolutely horrifying. And I said, oh, trust me, I remember that you did that. Um, you know, the that's, other you bring up a great point right there. And, uh, and, and ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the special holiday edition where, we, <laughs> <laughs> where, where it's you know what? You're you're really sick and tired of all the good cheer that's taking place. So we're going to we're going to get real right here because uh, we're we're really sharing. I, I'm a little teary eyed. We're sharing some. Uh, some heavy shit today that I didn't know was coming. And I don't think Jeff knew my answers. So I think a lot of this is a surprise for him. That's interesting. But I, years ago, and I'm going to try to make this and wrap it up. And then I'm going to tie this into what you just said. 
I was in a relationship and the error that I made in that relationship was someone else. It was another female and I was completely smitten with this other female and uh, she was, uh, what's the nicest way? She was a unique and interesting person and very sexual, which for somebody in their late twenties is that's about everything right there. (laughs) So that was, that was all I needed. So one day I go into work and the girl that I had been in a relationship with had worked at that restaurant, but no longer, but the employees were still friends with her. And the girl I was now, I guess, involved with did work in the restaurant. So this made for an ugly, sticky situation. And as it turns out, somebody who was a really great friend of mine, a female who was also the daughter of the owner of the restaurant, went and told the owner everything that I had been doing. And I was... I was devastated because my friend had completely stabbed me in the back and and just fucked me. So with that, I approached her a year ago, maybe a year and it was after I got divorced and I moved out and we were talking. We're, we 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 were we were still friends even though this situation had occurred years ago. We were still friendly and I said, "Hey, can we talk for a minute?" And I said, there's something I want to get off my chest. And I said, do you remember this? And I was so mad at you. And she goes, I swear to God, I have no recollection of this whatsoever. And you just saying what you just said made me exactly think of this same story. So do you think that sometimes in our heads, we've built this up to such a degree that the other people don't have any idea what we're talking about? Oh, I'm I'm sure there's absolutely no doubt about that. I mean, there there are things that... uh, you know, that I can remember that happened in my life. Uh, and I remember them like it was yesterday. And I sit there and think to myself, I'm sure that that person has absolutely no memory of whether it's a a good memory or a bad memory. And you sit there and think, I bet you that person, if I I mentioned it to him would be like, what the fuck are you talking about? You know, I I don't remember that at all. So yeah, no, uh, absolutely. We, we do that. Last question. All right. What's one story I don't know about you and not me. What's one story that Zach and Zoe don't know about you? Oh, that I can tell, right? <laughs> Fuck. That's the problem. Cause I, at this point, I think I've shared most of the stories. All right. I'll give you one because if it makes it on air, at least I wound up doing the right thing. So in the 1980s, when the 1980s were taking place in South Florida, cocaine was everywhere. Jeff, you know it. I know it. I've been watching Narcos the last few days, which I know you've watched, and it's a great show. What what is this year? It's cocaine. Is that what you said? Cocaine. How do you spell that? (laughs) C-O. And you know, living in South Florida, it was part of our daily routine. If we didn't do it, we knew somebody that was doing it. It was everywhere. And there were times when I absolutely partook. Around 1986, and I want to say it was – no, I take it back. It was Christmas. Christmas holidays of 1985, I I can't fully tell this story, but I will tell you this off air, but I I can't put this on air. There was a situation where I swore I would never do cocaine again. Uh, Didn't happen to me, but happened to a friend of mine, and I never did cocaine again. Fast forward to 1994, it is 3 a.m., 
I am in an after hours club in New York City. Have you ever been to an after hours club, Jeff? I have not. So in New York City, the after hours clubs generally they they take place in legitimate daytime businesses. So a lot of them were uh, at least the ones I used to go to were actually travel agencies that would close at six o'clock and then they would open up around midnight and it was illegal gambling. There was prostitution. There were drugs. If it was if it was illegal and it was happening and someone could make money off of it, it was taking place in these clubs. But they were a lot of fun. I'm in the I'm in this one. I'm with a group of people. There's eight, ten of us. And there's a guy, skinny guy, jittery as fuck clearly remember exactly what he looked like and he's got a hunting knife and he's making lines on a table in front of him and he's drawing out these lines with the white powder and he's saying if anybody wants to do it it's all yours i'm fine you guys can do it and i looked at it i was like shit been you know it's been what nine years since i've done it so maybe you know it's maybe i should what the hell right it's 3 a.m it's new york city it's a legal club maybe i should do it and i said yeah you know what i'm gonna walk away and i walked away and i was very happy i walked away jeff because as i found out about 15 minutes later that was heroin uh, that was not yeah, cocaine yeah, well, yes so that that was a show might deal. sound a lot different <laughs> Show, yeah, show could have been a lot different. God knows this guy was all over the place, but yeah, I think that would be the one that I don't think I've ever told the kids. Uh, but happy to say I didn't do it that night. So yeah, I will break kayfabe to you and the listeners in telling you, Barry Rose, in my entire life, never once did cocaine. It does not mean I was not offered it. I remember uh, there was a, a party. Uh, I will say it was a Toys R Us related party uh, where apparently uh, the people at the party uh, didn't want to grow up and, you know, be Toys R Us kids either. They wanted to do cocaine. And I did not. And the reason I did not was not because I was, uh, you know, Mr. Uh, uh, Goody Two Shoes, don't want to do the cocaina. It was because I had an incredibly horrible head cold. And I said, well, this shit isn't going to do anything for me. I got a cold. Why would I want to take it? At least that was my logic at the time. Uh, and that was my only opportunity that I ever recall uh, that I would have had any interest in doing it. Uh, maybe if I had not had the head cold, I would have chosen to partake, to uh, sample the product, as it were. Uh, I was in positions uh, later in life where I could have sampled the product and chose not to because, quite frankly, I didn't have any interest, but that's me. So I would say... That uh, the story that I was thinking of as you were uh, telling the story, um, let's just say that uh, after the end of my first marriage and uh, between my first and second marriage, there was <clears throat> there was a uh, a lady that I used to work with, and I went out to a a club with uh, three other people, and we met two or three other people. And we're having a good time. And I was uh, advised that one of the ladies that was there that night uh, was perhaps potentially attracted and or interested in me. Uh, and so I said, really? And so, uh, you know, there was a uh, a meeting that was had and there was an agreement to be made uh, that uh, she would be, in fact, coming home with me. And uh, the interesting thing was, was also uh, that evening there was a lady that was uh, there who I worked with at the courthouse 
who I was uh, a little smitten with uh, and was uh, had in fact had asked her out, I believe, earlier that day. Oh, let's go out and have lunch one day next week. Oh, okay, that sounds good. And so here I happen to just randomly run into that person. So I have these two women that are interested in me on this one particular night. And I had another friend that uh, told me, oh, boy, looks like you're uh, you're quite the little studly master here tonight, aren't you? You got two women after you. And so uh, I spent the entire evening at the club dancing with this woman from the courthouse, getting to know her better, uh, engaging in a, a future opportunities. Whereas uh, when she left, I then partook in the other opportunity that was available to me, who by this point was rather heavily intoxicated, I will say, uh, but was waiting for me to take her home. And, <laughs> and I, in fact, did take her home, at which point uh, she spent the night and the next day I dropped her off and uh, was a complete cat and never called her again. Uh, but then I began a rather long-term relationship with the other woman that I had, uh, you know, had met there that night that I knew from the courthouse. So, yes, uh, behavior that I'm not particularly fond of uh, that my kids, uh, if they happen to listen to this, had never heard of. So, Barry Rose, we've come to the end of our segment on fatherhood and fathers. We have indeed broken kayfabe on a new subject, Barry. We did. We uh, we opened up a lot. We we broke opened kayfabe. a vein, if you will. We shared. Uh, In your case, almost literally, Barry. Yeah, at it the is, very but, end. Uh, this was a good thing. I think I do think we need to do this every so often. All right, Barry, about time for the old go home episode 296 weepy dad episode. Are you about ready to call it a day? Barry Rose 296. Let me get the hand 297. Uh, enough with your hand. You, you do that a lot during the, uh, the show. Oh, I, you're boy, did I do that a lot counting. during the show? Jeff, we've only got four more regular episodes now. Yeah. Four more. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So, uh, you know, now is the time. I say this, I think, every episode. Now is the time to chip in that $5 to the Patreon uh, account of Breaking Kayfabe About Remember. You'll get the same high-quality podcast. We will be reviewing matches. We'll be talking movies, music, pop culture, television, life. And just think, if you're one of those people who can't see fit to give us your $5, and boy, if you're not one of those people— I'm probably going to point that out to you, uh, or I will have pointed that out to you at the Fan Fest. I got one guy in particular, Barry, not going to mention any names. But anyway, if you're not one of those people, why aren't you? Because you're going to be missing out on all the fun, Barry. Yeah, that, that's it. You know, look at five bucks, right? It's not much. And really, it's five dollars paying like protection money. So Jeff doesn't call you out on air. Uh, to me, that is a, a massive bargain. But five dollars is going to get you, I don't know. How many hours, Jeff? 50, 60, 100 hours of content? That's All nothing. the prior Patreon episodes. Yeah, so you subscribe. Look, summer's coming up. Maybe you're going to be at the beach or just fucking around. You get all these episodes, all this content for only five bucks. Put your headphones in. Enjoy life. You know, and we're going to give you, whether it's the regular edition, whether it's a uh, the additional content, you're looking at. I would say a bare minimum of three hours per month in the two episodes. So an hour and a half minimum each episode. Uh, Cause you know, we're not going to be one of these podcasts. that's going to ask for five bucks and then we'll give you 30 minutes of content. No, we're not built that way. We are not hardwired that way. Barry, 
excellent use of the term hardwired. That excellent. Way. What you didn't mention the nudes that we send them also. That's true. You know, uh, we we do like Brett Favre. We take the uh, little screenshot there and uh, you know and forward little it to being uh, the keyword. Well, yes. a very very little. Bit, you know. So anyway, I, I don't know. Would you say micro Barry? Is that your uh, definition? <laughs> micro. Of anyway, I yeah. saw that in an article the other day. So on that note, on the on the micro penis. <laughs> That's a great way to end a father's uh, father's Absolutely. special. Absolutely, I'm, sure, I'm sure Mike and Larry would be extremely proud of both of us for that. Oh yeah. So I will remind even each of you that Breaking Gay Fame with Bowden and Barry, uh, still, still amazingly a production of the Arcadian Network. They haven't decided to kick us off the air yet. So uh, for Barry Rose, for our producer Sweet Lou Kippelman out in the city by the bay, I am Jeff Bowden on behalf of uh, Mike and Larry. Thank you, dads. We really appreciate everything you taught us. Lou, take us home. Amen.